All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Would you stand with me, please, as you're able for the reading of God's holy word? I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not teach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence uh, among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So, Paul has been talking... uh, the last little bit before we got here, chapters 8 and 9, about the whole idea of giving and grace being poured out and flowing out through them and integrity and and generosity and love and compassion uh, without limits being poured out um, uh, before, uh, before the Lord as an offering un, uh, unto Him primarily as they support one another and encourage one another. And in the context of thinking about caring for one another and so on now, Paul returns to what is arguably one of the main reasons that this letter was ever penned in the first place. And that is there is still, there's still problems with integrity in, in Corinth. There's still issues of compassion in Corinth. There are still those that are working at contrary purposes to Paul in Corinth. And here Paul gets personal. You know, he starts off the letter talking about Paul with Timothy, and it's, it's, a, it's a mutual effort between the two of them writing this letter and conversing. But here, 
He leaves Timothy out of this and says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. I, okay, no middleman, no scribe, this is me. He gets personal here. He's had a number of criticisms that were raised against him uh, by uh, those in the Corinthian church, saying that he was vacillating about uh, his purposes, unsure, uncertain, that he was uh, even cowardly. Uh, we see a little bit of that here, and he reminds them of, of that. He's well aware that he's accused of, of being a hypocritical coward, uh, that his authority is illegitimate. Um, this was something that Paul constantly had to deal with because he wasn't one of the original 12. Right? He was the Lord's replacement, um, spent arguably the same amount of time uh, with the Lord in the desert for three years, being instructed, um, and as well of all of the other disciples, by the way, Paul was by far and away the most educated of any of the other disciples. You realize he studied under the feet of Gamaliel. He himself was a Pharisee, had studied from a being a child, not just what uh, all Jewish boys did, but he was studying to be a, a leader. And um, his argumentation was formidable, his education was formidable, and yet people still said, you don't have the right to be here. What do you, who do you think you are? And I have no doubt, because he brings it up time to time, that his past, right, of persecuting the church and so on, was doubtless thrown up in his face again and again and again, looking at the errors of his past and as if that uh, struck away any legitimacy he had to speak to the church now in the present. So there are most, as we've already seen, I think most in the Corinthian church have come to see the error of their ways. They're back in his corner. They're recognizing, they've recognized his authority but there are still some holdouts. Now we're going to look at that a little more closely in a couple of weeks when I'm back and we look at the second half, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But um, whether it's, it doesn't seem to be a large group, it could even be just, just a few that seems to probably be spearheaded by one guy, maybe, or, or two. We'll look at that a little more closely in a couple of weeks. But you've got a minority that's still being kind of vocal about this, we're going to see some of the things that are that they're saying. Then you get on into chapter 11, um, and even into 12, primarily chapter uh, 11, uh, end of 10 and 11. You see a pretty good picture of those who have been opposing the Apostle Paul, and they're not being nice about it. They're not being nice about it at all. It, it really seems to be a power struggle. They resent the apostle coming in and asserting that he has the right to instruct them and to discipline them. They want their, these holdouts seem to be those that want to assert their, their apostleship. Not that they are one of the 12, uh, or even like Paul had spent three years in the wilderness and could rival that. Um, these are people in Corinth that want to hold the reins of power and tell everybody else what to do and be uh, and Paul re refers to them elsewhere as these super apostles or these, these great apostles that uh, they style themselves as being. They want the right to lead the Corinthian church and want Paul to butt out. 
Well, I mean, think about put yourself in Paul's place. Of course, that uh, probably wouldn't make you feel very good. I'm sure, it was a discouragement to him. And yet, we've seen throughout this letter already, haven't we, that the the that Paul has not been shy about speaking of his confidence in the in the church as a whole, again and again and again. But he's got to deal with these uh, others that uh, are are denying his uh, authority and making these accusations of him. And as we've already seen, it's not he's not doing this just to uh, make himself look good. He's really concerned for the cause of Jesus Christ um, and a recognition of the authority of Christ as Christ has done it, not people coming into the church and saying, this is... Uh, you know, we think we have the right to lead things and do things, and everybody else needs to go away. So, this uh, is, uh, he's talking about warfare, you mentioned, you heard there, he's talking about warfare here, so there's a fight on. And the fight is mostly won, but um, there's some some, uh, cleanup that has to be done. You know, uh, Thinking about the wildfires that are surrounding us, some of you are probably familiar with how wildfire uh, fighting goes, or wildland fire fighting goes. But once, when a fire goes through a forest, sure, it hits the loose stuff that's on the surface, hits the trees, leaves a lot of black behind, and so on. And they work hard. Firefighters work hard to dig lines around it to contain it. And so to prevent it from jumping um, into fresh fuel, they try to get it to just burn through the fuel that's in a particular place so they get some water on it, get it killed, get it under control. The bigger it is, the harder that is. But once the flames are gone, it can be really tempting to go, well, it's all done. We can go home now. But wildland fires take a long time of cleanup. And it's kind of the same in structure fires as well. When the fires are down, you've got more work to do. And that's because fire can dig into, into holes. In the forest, it deep, digs down into mats of you know, layers and layers of pine needles and leaves and pine cones and fallen trees and all that stuff that can be many feet deep. A few years ago, the Parker Ridge fire up here, um, they were digging uh, huge holes with excavators to get down to where the fire was at, had actually burned many feet down into the ground. And in some cases, the fires that are burning now will not actually be totally out until the snow falls because it will be burning underneath. Paul is aware that, okay, the flames are out in Corinth, but there's still fire underneath the surface that has to be rooted out. That's what he's doing here. You know, there are some battles um, that are quite obvious in the church, right? Uh, perhaps the most obvious one, we want to build the church up, we call the, 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 the lost to Christ, and we uh, call people to righteousness in a community, and we look at all those things, and it's great. Some things, people come in, they make professions of faith, they begin to grow um, in terms of things in the community. When if the church speaks up and we see wickedness being thwarted, put down in the community, we go, that's great. Is the battle over? It's not. 
In many ways, it's only just begun. Because while that's the obvious battle, there are other battles as well. And Paul is referring to that here. In this case, it's a battle for the hearts of the Corinthian believers. Again, not Paul has already argued in Corinth against a partisan spirit. He's not trying to raise up a, part, a, a pro-Paul party. He's trying to encourage submission, as we've seen here in this passage, submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul represents, and who has commissioned Paul for this particular task. And uh, what you have here, the burning embers underneath, are jealousy. Jealousy for Paul's authority. Jealousy for his divinely sourced power. I mean that nobody could argue that what Paul was doing was producing results. As churches sprung up everywhere, as people were being healed, as people were um, being uh, effectively challenged, demons cast out, and so on, by the power of God working through Paul. So nobody could argue with that. But that didn't stop the Pharisees from arguing with the Lord Jesus when they saw the works that he was doing. And he constantly was saying to them, if you don't believe what I'm saying, at least believe the works. But they wouldn't do it. They were so intent upon getting their own way and being the ones in power and keeping their place. And it seems to be a similar kind of mindset there in Corinth on the part of some. And frankly, um, this jealousy is driving a few of these folks to... Just fight Paul at every turn. And that hurt everybody. Paul, when we get here to this passage, he's been very positive. He's talking about his confidence in the church as a whole and the blessing that they have been and how encouraged he is. And yet, as he thinks about these people who, even in the midst of this tremendous gift that has been put together, that has been delayed because of all this stuff, he's had it. He's done with it. And so he uh, steps things up here a little bit in this chapter um, because he knows that if this this battle for the, the hearts of the Corinthians to walk in submission to Christ is lost, then all the other battles are, are gone with it. If the church of Jesus Christ doesn't walk, if, if we walk... Uh, at odds with each other and fighting for whoever's going to going to run the church uh, if, if we're struggling with those things how effective do you think our witness and testimony will be in this community? It'll be done. There are, are plenty of churches around this community and many other communities like ours around this nation and around the world that have had their testimony destroyed because of internal bickering and fighting and power plays and all of that stuff. Paul knows that. And he is determined that that is not going to happen in the Corinthian church on his watch. But there is a right way to fight such battles. And there's a wrong way too. Paul lays out his battle strategy and it's a very, very strong here in these first six verses, and then uh, develops it a little bit further in the in the um, passage that remains in this chapter and on into chapter eleven. 
You need to fight just as Paul did. Fight the Lord's battles in a way that is truly praiseworthy. Praiseworthy not of us as the fighters, but praiseworthy of God Himself. And these first six verses, to my mind, are just key. They're the foundation to all that we do when we talk about tearing down strongholds. This passage, as you heard as we read through, is where I got the title for this series and uh, around which everything else uh, that we've been talking about all along here, uh, around which it's, it has centered on chapter 10 and verse 4. Uh, the strongholds that, uh, uh, that we are supposed to be tearing down have been throughout this. And now we have a stronghold of remaining, kind of rooting out remaining disunity, if you want to call it that. Um, but that is certainly a stronghold that Paul is going after here. But he wants to go about it in the right way. So let's take a look at that. I'm going to uh, take the theme of this particular section from verse 1. As Paul, again, has made this very personal. Okay, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm going to contend with you here at this point that you are to fight your battles, whether external or internal, with Christ-likeness. Paul grounds everything in the character and actions of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so you and I must do. And as he begins to uh, unfold what that looks like, it's quite easy to see these very things in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom Paul, by whom Paul is doing these things, and according to that example, he is doing these things. So, fight your battles with Christ-likeness. Christ-like in what way, though? First of all, meekness. I think most of us are familiar with the concept of meekness. It's certainly a word that um, we know, it's common. But I think most of us here are probably also aware that many do not understand what meekness really means. They think it means uh, being quiet and mousy and not speaking up ever, or not standing up for yourself, being kind of, of uh, wishy-washy, just a doormat, just what everybody says, that's fine. That has nothing to do with biblical meekness, it has nothing to do with this word at all, as I'm sure most of you know. Lord Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from, from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That word gentle, that is there, and lowly, he's referring there to his meekness. In fact, some translations use the word meekness there. When you think about Christ, um, just think about his brand of meekness. Did he just take whatever wickedness was thrust his way, said to him, and just go, oh, well, okay. Is that what he did? No, it isn't. He spoke up boldly against it, did he not? When he saw error, he confronted it. Did he not? 
He went to the cross not with, oh, well, whatever, but after having told Pontius Pilate, if you had any power at all, the only power you have is given to you by God. And if I wish to be done with you and done with this, I'd call down a legion and you'd be done. But he didn't do that because he was walking in obedience to his father and every uh, bit of his authority and power was voluntarily subsumed under the authority of God himself. So he did the hard thing. Now meekness is not about being uh, frail and, and a wishy-washy patsy. It's about all of your energies and all of your strengths uh, walking in submission to the one who rules over your soul. Now Paul was accused of being humble, right? He uses this, he's, he recites in that little parenthetical there, I who am humble. Now that sounds like, well, somebody's accusing you of hum humility. Anybody ever accused you of being humble and you resented it? All right. All right, Brian. You're a humble guy. How dare you? Right. I mean, well, this word in the English can be a little misleading to us. In the Greek, it has a little different idea. It can be translated humble, but what it really means is faint-hearted. In other words, your humility is the kind that because you're, you're terrified, you... you, you, you basically grovel before others in that, that kind of humility. That's what Paul's being accused of. Oh yeah, he's just, <clears throat> he <clears throat> is a coward. Um, and, and a hypocritical one at that because, you know, he's really uh, cowardly and present, but uh, he, boy, he can sure write a mean letter, but, you know, he's really just a coward. No, we need, Paul says, no, no, no. Uh, that's, I, that is not the case. I'm following after the meekness of Christ. That's my model. I'm not commending myself by anybody else, but by His example. And His example is, you do what is necessary with gentleness, with kindness, but with firmness, and with courage, regardless of what anybody else thinks. That is the meekness of Christ, and I'm thankful for it. Otherwise, we would be lost. Along with this, meekness and gentleness, that word gentleness there, uh, it's, it could be translated in a word that we don't use too often these days, but maybe we should. Uh, the word clemency, it's an older word. It used to be quite common. But um, clemency is, uh, is the idea of Really knowing, knowing when to um, set aside punishment in order to accomplish the same goal that punishment might accomplish um, were it necessary. Does that make sense? <laughs> Think about uh, a, a good judge, a just judge, who has those come before him uh, that looks at what maybe not just what crime has been committed 
what infraction has been committed, but also is willing to look at the circumstances, willing to look at patterns, and from a human judge standpoint, may look at a person and say, well, I know I've had this history before, or maybe not, maybe this is a first-time offense, whatever it is, but look at, look at the individual and say, the sentence usually required for this is such and so. But due to the circumstances, due to what you've already suffered, and due to you know, good faith and so on, um, the penalty will be this, or I will waive it entirely. Did Christ ever do that? What do you think about the Pharisees who were all gung-ho about punishment, weren't they? Oh boy, they wanted their pound of flesh every chance they could get because it helped demonstrate to the rest of the world how holy they, they were in their own minds. Do you remember, however, in John chapter 8, there was this little matter of this woman who was taken in adultery. There is no doubt she had committed adultery. What was the offense for adultery under the Mosaic Code? Stoning. Yeah. Yeah. And these guys haul her up before Jesus, and they're trying to trap Jesus, aren't they? They want to see what he wants to see what he's going to say. Because they already know that he is kinder to sinners, you know, and I say this as in their frame of mind, kinder to those who are obviously sinners than he is to them. By far. And they want to catch him and say, in him saying, well, you don't have to obey the law. That's what they want. Because then they have something to accuse him of. They haul her up before him and say, well, now, here she's taking adultery. What should we do? And then he does his little graffiti in the dirt thing. I would love to know what he wrote. Anyways, writing there in the dirt. And doesn't say, it doesn't say much. Finally looks up and says, let the sinless one among you cast the first stone. Goes back to writing. One by one, their consciences smite them and they slink away. Finally, he's alone with her and says, where are your accusers? And she's like, um, I don't know, I was about to leave myself. You know, I mean, I kind of always wondered why she just stood there. I think it had to do with just the power of who Christ is. I don't think she had a, in a sense, I don't think she had a choice. I think it was like she was riveted there to hear before the King of Kings what her sentence would be. And what does he say? Go and sin no more. I won't condemn you. That's clemency. That's the word that's used by Paul here. I have no doubt in my mind that Paul was thinking of that. And perhaps other things that he was aware of from Jesus' ministry as well. But that doesn't mean that Paul, in his gentleness, wouldn't speak up. Think about how he did speak to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, for example. Go and read that chapter sometime. It won't take time to do it. Um, there are seven woes that are pronounced against the Pharisees in that chapter. Someday I'm going to do a, ser a series on those for whenever we feel like really being, you know, having an uplifting sermon series. Uh, but we're going to talk about the woe. Someday we'll do that. Um, 
Remind me if I forget. Uh, but I would like to do that sometime. To look at those seven woes uh, upon the hypocritical Pharisees. Um, it's not that he's brutal and cruel. But he is not particularly gentle either. In this particular case, clemency is something that is a discretionary thing on the part of authority. And Christ knew when to, when to exert uh, the full weight of the law and when to show mercy. And the Pharisees who were hypocritical, who thought they were righteous, who thought they needed nothing, who were intent upon harming not only themselves and Christ, but all of God's people because of their falsehood and their pride, he let them have it. So there's a place for that. It's funny. Uh, on the one hand, the, the, the naysayers in Corinth complain about how harsh Paul is. And then on the other hand, they complain about, you know, how wussy he is. Because he shows grace and mercy in some places, and he's hard-nosed in other places. You know, we get the same thing here. If a, you know, how many times in the past several decades have we seen Christian leaders knuckle under the pressure to go apologize for something that they said that is biblical? as they speak condemnation upon this fallen society. Oh, you can't say that. Oh, that's unloving. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Aren't you, don't you know anything about the love of Christ? Judge not, lest you be judged. Blah, 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 blah. There's a place and a time for speaking truth boldly into a situation, particularly among those who are proclaiming to be right, who are proclaiming to be speaking for God, but are not. But for those who are the lost and deceived and confused and sorrowful, that's not a time to go in there with a baseball bat. And knowing the difference was a, was a characteristic of Paul's ministry and Christ's. Knowing when to punish with severity and when to show mercy. So fight with that kind of clemency. Don't go in there when you're going with a battle. Whether it's out there among the lost or whether it's with, with internal struggles, because there are sins among here, right, that we have to deal with, either personally back and forth one with the other, or just uh, wrestling with temptation or whatever, affliction, whatever we have. Um, it's a pretty good idea not to go in with all your claws showing to begin with. To, to know how to walk gently among the saints, and as well as the world, so that you do not bring any... Um, Cast any aspersions upon the name of your gentle Savior. Our gentle Savior, Meek, also was known, as we already said, with a lot, known by a lot of boldness. So in verse 2, Paul says, I, uh, I'm, uh, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul fully expected to challenge the naysayers. Uh, to challenge them with the, from a position of assurance of his own position and a recognition, his recognition of the actual truth of the situation. Um, he was going to use, he was prepared to use severe measures, but we see here in this section really as a last resort. He wasn't planning on going in there and just, you know, laying waste to, to everybody, there's still 
hope for reconciliation, even in these words. He doesn't want to go in with the kind of boldness that he's kind of suspecting he's going to have to, based on how determined these others have been. Um, You know, you look at Paul here, as he fights here with a boldness that was exemplified by Christ. There's no self-doubt here. Paul is not doubting himself at all. Now, he's not being cocky about this. But he doesn't doubt his position, his commission, his enabling by the Spirit of God. He's accused of walking according to the flesh. And by that, uh, I believe that basically he's being accused of being self-serving and proud and depending upon upon himself. And all he does is tell us how what an apostle he is. Blah 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 blah. You can you can hear the critics uh, against him there. Turn over to John chapter two, if you will. I want to read this passage, just a few verses. John chapter 2. This is uh, an account of the Lord Jesus. He's gone down to Capernaum uh, with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they're staying there for a few days. And then after that, we read in verse 12 that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So, he, uh, interesting, he's heading south from Capernaum, from Galilee down to Jerusalem, but uh, in uh, Israel, it doesn't matter where you are in the country, if you're going to Jerusalem, you go up. You're going up to the mountain of the Lord there. In any case, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the kind of boldness that our Savior exhibited against wickedness and sin. Think about that. That's a pretty, from a human standpoint, a pretty gutsy thing to do. For someone who's not a Roman soldier, who's unarmed, who um, is, while regarded as a traveling teacher, even called a rabbi by some, uh, but everybody knows has no formal training, um, as far as they're concerned, right? Uh, he, has no, he holds no office. He's not in the Sanhedrin. He's not among the Pharisees. He's, in, in a sense, he's a carpenter's son from Nazareth, as far as the the people are concerned, who happens to say a lot of nice things and heal people, but he goes in there and he undoes an established tradition in the temple of taking people for all their worth and cheating them in the temple as they have to buy stuff because their stuff wasn't good enough. They got to buy the temple stuff in order to make their sacrifices. And he goes in there and cleans them out. And tells him to get lost. It's pretty awesome. And he does it with a whip. I don't think he went in there with the with the whip and went, Okay guys, you don't do this. 
going to sting. No. Christ has boldness as he goes into that temple. And Paul is saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to play the bad guy. But the fact is, is that when I come in, if this isn't addressed, I will be acting in a bold fashion just as my Savior did. According to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This would fall under the meekness category where strength is used to accomplish God's purposes and under His authority. Christ spoke in that way and acted in that way to those who opposed the kingdom. And so Paul was willing to do that. Um, the uh, commentator uh, RBG Tasker and his little commentary on 2 Corinthians made this statement at this point. He said, frail human being though he is, as Paul as a man in Christ, he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is not going to wallow around in, in self-pity and hand-wringing and, and woe is me, I, don't, I wish this would change. He steps up and he's going to fulfill his office as he's been commissioned to do. So he fights with boldness. And he goes into this not by his own power, but he's, one, he's, he's going to fight, and here's the... The heart of this, he's fighting with Christ-like power. Think, we can think about some of the fleshly weapons that we might employ when it comes to arguments, when it comes to, to battles of one kind or another, both within our own hearts and with those in the world and those within the church. Fleshly weapons, well, things like being really clever. You ever get into an argument with somebody, particularly a theological argument, and, and they start slinging stuff at you and you just, everything in you wants to come back with this zinger that will just lay waste to the giant, right? Something really clever, something that, you know, will we'll, we'll really get them. We'll really get them. Um, remember uh, when you were feeling that way, that sometimes you, you might get them, you might even silence them, but what will you really accomplish is probably not the glory of God. Probably not the glory of God. Your ingenuity, your cleverness, it's tempting to go there, find our arsenal there, but that's a fleshly weapon. What about, you know, if my brother... Dr. Kevin Backus ever hears me say this statement, he's going to smile because uh, we had a discussion about organization one time years ago. <clears throat> um, and I, I told him at the time, being a rather unorganized individual, that I thought uh, all this time spent on organizational development was, was uh, sinful. <laughs> Which he labored to correct in me and... Uh, I would say was largely successful, though sometimes I, I uh, maybe, as you can tell by the errors in the bulletin, sometimes I'm not always entirely uh, on, there, on board with that. But nonetheless, we can depend upon our organizational skills, our ability to put things together, can't we? So yeah, I, I can do this, all right, I'm, we get that campaign mentality, that all right, I'm going to attack the town this way, I'm going to attack the congregation this way, I'm going to attack the individual this way, and we can... It's not that we shouldn't be organized in our thinking, Okay, we should. But if that's what you're depending upon for the battle, it's going to fail. Because here's a little secret for you. The rest of the world doesn't want to be organized the way you're organized. 
bottom line. So you can try all you want to with your organization, and it will probably help to some degree, but it's, it's still a fleshly weapon if that's all you're, if that's all you're depending upon. And then things like uh, eloquent rhetoric, having a, being able to really, really uh, speak well and all of that uh, can, be a, can be a fleshly weapon. Uh, reliance on your charm, reliance on your personality, uh, <clears throat> down to things like manipulation, coercion, outright deceit. Those are all fleshly weapons of warfare that can have a certain degree of effectiveness but do not accomplish the things of God. Paul says the weapons of our warfare here, back in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We're not, in verse 3, we're not waging war according to the flesh, not in a weak manner and not using those weapons. I want you to think about the kind of weaponry that Christ used in his earthly ministry. And I'm not going to turn to any one particular passage. I'm just trusting to your general knowledge of Jesus' earthly ministry. But I get this, uh, this weapons that have divine power to destroy the strongholds, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion, uh, taking every thought captive, being ready to punish every disobedience. These are the goals. We're going to talk about those goals in a minute. But how did Christ get there when he was doing that sort of thing? First, a powerful word. The word of God. All the words that, that the Father had given him, he said, I have given to you, he said to the disciples. And the disciples would say back to him, you alone have the words of life. You alone have the words of life. Christ, even as the, the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not innovate. All of his words came straight out of the Old Testament or were applications of the word that had already been given. And even his new revelation that came out of his mouth was based on that foundation. He didn't innovate. He said what the Father told him to say. And those words had power. And indeed, he is the living word. Think about a constant habit that Jesus had. Something he did over and over and over and over again. He went aside to pray. That was his constant habit. Whether after a great spiritual contest or prior to one, he would go apart, quiet place, and he prayed. The word and prayer. Huge weapons in our arsenal. Is Ephesians 6 coming to mind? Anybody? Should be. What about, uh, this is, uh, this could kind of go along with word, but I, I'm going to do it as a separate one. Not just speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in a way that we would all love to do. Uh, he had powerful wisdom. He did, he used divine logic. He would, he could twist people in, in, the knots of their bad thinking over and over again. Typically, Christ's opponents, when they went to trap him, were left speechless. They had no answer. Um, because, and, and, and he wasn't being a smart aleck about it. 
he just would turn their own reason on themselves to where they were sitting there mumbling under their breath because they had nothing else to say. He had a powerful authority. Sometimes um, in our fleshly wisdom, we want to appeal to our office or appeal to our education or appeal to our intellect or whatever. Um, what did people say about Christ? No one speaks like this guy. He speaks with authority. Not like the scribes and Pharisees who talked out of both sides of their mouth. Their character didn't match what they said. And they were often confusing in what they said. Not so Christ. Word, prayer, his wisdom in being able to address the needs of, that, of the hearts of those who he, to whom he was talking. And the authority with which he spoke. Even as a child, the, the, the leaders were astonished at his answers there in the temple at 12 years old. Again, he spoke everything that the Father gave him to say. He did everything the Father gave him to do. And he did it all with, from the standpoint of a divine commission to fulfill. Take a look over, if you will, real quick at Romans chapter 8. Just the first five verses. I want you to think about this as a kind of a summary passage to what we've just talked about with Christ-like power being in view that we're to fight with. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And we could read on there. But I want you to think in terms of the power of Christ to live came not from walking according to the flesh. Paul said, I'm, not, I'm accused of this, that's not how I'm walking. The weapons of my warfare are of divine power because they are spirit-driven. And the world may look at it as foolishness, it is through the word and prayer that the kingdom of Satan will be undone. And then the word and prayer lived out in wisely addressing the world with the authority of the king. That's the game plan. In essence, it's not that hard, is it? In practice, another thing. We pray God to enable us. But what are our goals? Back to Second Timothy, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians, uh, chapter ten, verses five and six. And we'll wrap this up fairly quickly. What are your goals? Is it to uh, build your you know, build your esteem and your reputation? Is it to build your status in the church, be like uh, Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among uh, the believers that John, the Apostle John confronted in, uh, in uh, his epistles? Uh, apparently you had people there in Corinth who loved to have the preeminence as well. Is that, is that your goal? To have your, your power? 
to have your influence, to have people listen to you. Paul tells what his goals are, and he makes it really plain that the goal is not about, look how wonderful Paul is. First, he says, we destroy arguments. This word arguments has the idea of not just um, people going back and forth in a, in a heated discussion. This word, um, I, I meant to change this to the English transliteration, but so you got the Greek word logismos there. Logismos. Is there another Greek word that comes to mind? It starts the same way. Logos, the word. This is logismos. Um, so if you want to think about logismos, it's uh, using the word as a gizmo. It means misleading reasonings. Twisted reasonings. It, it sounds really good. Usually what happens is, uh, in these kinds of things, you use your conclusion as one of your premises so that you will, you will be sure of proving your premise. It sounds really logical. And the world is full of, of, of all kinds of logic these days, whether it's in, under critical race theory or any number of other things that are going on in the hot button issues right now. And they write books and books and pages and pages. And the, at the end of the day, it's a lot of drivel. But it confuses a lot of people. Sucks a lot of people in because it sounds so rational. Arguments is things that sound plausible, but they're really twisted assertions. Contrast that to logos, the living word, Jesus Christ. The real content. That's where we need to turn people's attention to. And so we have the goal of when we speak to others, of recognizing what their twisted reasoning is and bringing it to nothing. Showing that it is indeed nothing. That's goal number one. Goal number two. These twisted reasonings don't just come out of thin air. They come out of a context of arrogant rebellion against God. And that's the next thing we have here uh, in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Our goal as we contend with each other, as we contend with the lost, and even in our own hearts, we need to cast down the God of pride in our lives and oppose arrogant presumptions against God, which is the idea behind this the lofty opinions here. That either we know better than God, so therefore God needs to conform to our way of thinking, whether it's in theology, proper, or in behavior. And our task, again, is not to wave our little banner and elevate ourselves, but is to look at those who are walking in opposition to God and confront them with the reality of God so that they have now no longer any excuse. They have before them two ways, walk according to the Lord or not. But no more waffling. Put away your arrogance, put away your presumptions about God and humble yourself before Him. Third, of uh, this now we are on into um, uh, the, the last part of verse 5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So a third goal is to bring every thought into conformity with Christ's truth. Now how do you do that? 
with bumper sticker religion, with cleverness. No. In the book of Romans, Paul says, it's by the foolishness of preaching. The gospel to those who are perishing is looked at as foolishness. And those who preach it, those who teach it, those who declare it, as fools of the highest order. So it's counterintuitive to us. We, you know, we want to throw our degrees at it. Nothing wrong with degrees. i got a few of them. These days we, got, we all have degrees, don't we? Um, but the, uh, as far as academic degrees go, uh, it can be really easy to think, you know, I'm going to uh, you know, baffle them with my brilliance. But no. It's by the humbly preaching plain speech, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who casts down the strongholds ultimately, not us. So we need to get out of the way so we can he uh, may do his thing without us interfering. So by the foolishness of the gospel we will bring every thought into conformity with Christ's truth. And what is the final goal? The goal of seeing complete obedience to the king. To the king, to Christ. We see that at the end of verse 5. Every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, it, it, by when your obedience is complete, complete, uh, it's really thinking about the goal, or unto that goal, that the uh, obedient, your obedience will be full. The, the punish there, interesting word, it means vengeance. Vengeance. But this vengeance is not through according to the flesh. Everything we've read so far is according to how, how is he going to exact vengeance upon those who are opposing Christ by opposing Paul? It's going to be by declaration. He's really speaking of excommunication here, I think. He's not talking about going in there and slapping them around or doing some other corporal or capital kind of punishment. He's talking about declaring their situation and who they are and what they are before God. Um, uh, Calvin said uh, at this particular verse, this vengeance is founded on Christ's word, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Speaking to the authority that Paul possesses to be able to look at someone after examining them and exhorting them and challenging them and they refusing to come to repentance to say, you are, no, you, you are not acting as a believer, you are acting as an unbeliever, uh, you must be put out of the church until such time as you repent and return. That's the declaration that's going on here. But even then, it's still as a last resort. Paul is not looking, like, I'm coming, and I'm going to kick you all out. It's not what he's saying. But he's ready to do that. As he says there in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience until your obedience is complete. So this is the pattern that we see about Christ-like battle strategy with those who oppose the gospel, with those who are filled with their own arrogance and with their, uh, their twisted reasonings about reality. We need to confront them with God's reality. We need to confront them with uh, their poor thinking and their sinful behavior according to the Word of God, being gentle where we can, bold where we must, and follow the pattern of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, we'll talk more about fighting... Uh, uh, about battle strategy in a praiseworthy way as we look at the remainder of this chapter and then on into 
chapter 11 as well in the Sundays to come. But for now, let us take these things to heart as we confront sin within ourselves and within the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of the apostle in uh, his situation with the Corinthian church. And most particularly, thank you, Father, for the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave us the supreme pattern for fighting your battles, the battles of the kingdom, in your power and in your way. Help us to do that, Father, putting ourselves aside and exalting.